everyone. This is the Katie Helper Show. I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. Also, this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. For just $1 a month, you help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you get extended interviews and bonus interviews. On this episode, I speak to Ryan Grimm and then Phyllis Bennis, and on the Patreon-only episode, you hear the extended interview with Ryan Grimm, as well as an entirely additional interview with Jose Vega, the protester who interrupted AOC and criticized her support of the war in Ukraine, as well as Jesse Tyler Lee, a writer and the host of the new Psychic Frontiers podcast. All of that is at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. That's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Hello and welcome to the Katie Helper Show. And thank you for coming to what is definitely going to be an exciting show. We're going to have a jam-packed show for you today. First, I'm going to play an interview that I did with Brian Grimm, who is the Intercepts DC Bureau Chief. Then I'm going to bring on Phyllis Bennis, who is a fellow of the Institute for Policy Studies, and she's going to be talking about the importance of a ceasefire. Now, before we start, of course, I would love for people to... Like the stream, you just hit a like, you just give a thumbs up, that's all you got to do. It's a way to keep the show going, keep the show moving, and also a way to stick it to the corporate overlords who try to control our lives. So that's an easy way to just do something good for the world, just hitting the thumbs up. So everyone should do that, please. Also, if you're not already a subscriber, please become a subscriber. Hit subscribe and then the bell, that way you never miss a stream or a new clip. Also, you can become YouTube members and you get badges and cute emojis. And if you want to watch the whole thing, then please join at Patreon. That's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. So without any further ado, we are going to play the interview I did with Ryan Grimm, which I recorded Tuesday afternoon. And you'll see why that's relevant. But I'll just give you a hint and say there was some breaking news that he responds to. All right. Brad, will you play the first part of my interview with Ryan Grimm? So excited to be talking to Ryan Grimm, the D.C. Bureau Chief of The Intercept. And he has a new piece that he's probably going to have to update really quickly, really soon. Uh, The piece is... It's updated. Oh, you did? All right. All right, great. So the recently updated piece... Uh, House progressives float diplomatic path towards ending war in Ukraine, get annihilated, quickly clarify. That's been updated to withdraw. Okay, withdraw. So walk us through what happened. Tell us about this letter. Tell us about their clarification and then tell us what they did later with this letter. So Monday morning, the Washington Post reported that the that 30 progressives had sent a letter to the White House uh, which they re- which they said uh, called for a dramatic reversal of how Biden uh, is is approaching negotiations with Ukraine, and to the extent that it was dramatic, it was a suggestion that the U.S. should talk directly to Russia and and work toward an end to this war. Uh, the letter also you know bent over backwards to say that we agree that you know only Ukrainians can lead negotiations, that any any resolution uh, you know must be endorsed by Ukrainians. We can't force anything on Ukrainians. But then I would say, but, you know, as people who are, you know, responsible for 
appropriating money for this as people who don't want to see a nuclear war, you know, we suggest that maybe you ought to think about some type of diplomatic resolution. At some point, no rush, you know, before nuclear war, uh, to oh, this boy. to this war. And that was the that was the letter. So then throughout the day, they're just getting utterly annihilated by the kind of like the resistance crowd. Uh, you had people like uh, also like Ruben Gallego criticize them publicly, uh, who's probably going to run against Kirsten Sinema, uh, Chris Murphy, you know, uh, you know, on the Foreign Affairs Committee or Foreign Relations Committee over the Senate side. He came out and kind of obliquely didn't quote tweet it, but criticized it, said it's, you know, that's not the moral thing to do right now. Just wait, keep waging that war. Uh, and by the evening, Jayapal put out a statement saying that the, uh, what she called a clarification, that they're saying, we're not, we're not saying that we're going to vote against war funding. Don't worry. Like, we're fully supportive of Ukrainian war money. All we're saying is that maybe we should think about a way to potentially, at some point in the future, think about ending this war. Um, then today, this afternoon, uh, a new statement came out uh, from Jayapal, which is, looks to be, it says, like, on behalf of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, but I don't, there's no evidence that kind of this was like a CPC vote. This seems like a, something that Jayapal did, saying that uh, staff had sent uh, an unvetted letter and that they were hereby withdrawing uh, their letter. So big never mind. And she also said, I think I have it here, that like um, the big, like the thing that they were really sad about is that people interpreted them as agreeing with Republicans. So they wrote, uh, because of the timing, our message is being conflated by some as being equivalent to the recent statement by Republican leader McCarthy threatening an end to aid to Ukraine if Republicans take over. It's actually not what McCarthy said. He said, in the middle of a recession, people are not going to want to give Ukraine a blank check with no strings attached. Slightly, slightly different. Uh, the proximity of these statements created the unfortunate appearance that Democrats who have strongly and unanimously supported and voted for every package of military, strategic, and economic assistance to the Ukrainian people are somehow aligned with Republicans who seek to pull the plug on American support for President Zelensky and the Ukrainian forces. I just noticed this now, but pull the plug just gave me a flashback to cut and run. Mm. Do you remember that phrase? Mm -mm. That Repub Republicans during um, Bush era, whenever a Democrat would say anything, uh, that wasn't 100% supportive of everything Bush was doing in Iraq. He would say that y'all just want to cut and run. Interesting. So pull the plug is a new cut and run. Yeah. Um, they say nothing could be further from the truth. Every war ends with diplomacy. And this one will too, after Ukrainian victory. Okay. Uh, the letter sent yesterday, although restating that basic principle, has been conflated with GOP opposition to support for the Ukrainians' just defense of their national sovereignty. As such, it is a distraction at this time, and we withdraw the letter. Uh, it, but if the real, if the problem is that it was conflated publicly with re Republicans, uh, I don't see how that's staff's fault. Uh, but anyway. Right. Um, so what I do know, and what I've been able to gather in the last couple hours, so Mark Pocan yesterday said, this letter was drafted in July. I don't know why it was sent today. And if you if you look at the letter, there's was he a signatory? Yeah. Okay. Uh, and if you look at the letter, uh, there are a couple indications that it was written back in July. It says like the you know Russian recent capture of certain cities, which they captured around then, not 
now. Um, and so, yes, it, like it was drafted around July, but th- then they started gathering signatures for it. Then there's a congressional recess, you know, through August, come back in September, gather some more signatures, uh, you eventually get to 30 and you send the letter. Uh, so there, you know, okay. Like, I guess you could say like maybe some offices didn't get a new heads up that like this letter that you signed to be sent to Biden is now being sent to Biden. But the reason you signed the letter is that it's going to be sent to Biden. Right. So would, so I guess their argument would be, well, I agreed with it in July, uh, but not now because we're close to an election and because Ukraine is kind of on the, on the, on the rampage. Right. Um, I, so anyway, so that's, so that's, that's currently where the situation sits. I no longer believe in diplomacy. They withdrew the letter. Although the letter just kind of quoted, uh, Admiral Mullen, it quoted Joe Biden saying that this is going to be a negotiated end. Right. It quoted Joe Biden saying Putin doesn't have a way out. And that's something that worries me. And I want to try to figure that out. Like it, it, it heavily relied on not just common sense, but also on things that Biden has said, just saying, we support this. Let's like, let's do something to move in that direction. This was the first, you know, move in that direction from Democrats. Um, You've you've had Republican, you've had a handful of Republicans who've been, you know, critical of the war. This was the first attempt to kind of open a conversation about it. And that, that attempt was shut down. And I think it's, I think we're in the middle of a historic moment here, or at least a moment that history will look back on as a kind of a touchstone uh, that like this was, this was a moment that showed that like, at least at this point, like there's no place for you in the democratic party. If you have even like the smallest reservations about anything other than a complete military victory, no matter what the cost financial and in terms of lives. Right. And, um, you were uh, you cited a tweet by Marcos Molitas from the Daily Coast, where he says this, referring to the initial letter. This by Rep. Rashida, Rep. Rokana, and other progressives is unbelievably naive and stupid. Asking for diplomacy with a murderous terrorist regime, literally raping and pillaging through Ukraine. Biden tried diplomacy to prevent the war. Only overwhelming force will now end it. Uh, and then he says, which Ukrainians do these progressives want abandoned to mass murder and rape in their attempt to prop up a flailing Russia? The only way to end this war is to help deliver a decisive uh, Ukrainians victory. These 30 House progressives are now making common cause with Lauren Boebert, Marjorie Taylor Greene, J.D. Vance and the rest of the MAGA crowd. You think that would give them some pause. So that last tweet about how it would give them some pause to be making common cause with Lauren Boebert, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and J.D. Vance. I find this a very common refrain that you're seeing a lot, and I think it's pretty dangerous Mm -hmm. because politics make for strange bedfellows, first of all. Second of all, uh, it's not clear, honestly. They may just be saying this rhetorically, like that, what Kevin McCarthy said, you know, that People don't want a blank check for Ukraine in the middle of a recession. It's not clear whether they're even going to change policies, but right, he probably won't. Yeah, he probably won't. But he's smart enough to to just pay lip service. Right, to you can it. read polls. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 
But I find this increasingly used, this argument. And to me, it kind of speaks to the fact that there's such a dearth of a anti-war movement that's being uplifted or participated in at all by Democrats so that you have Republicans almost having a monopoly on this. And, and I'm not saying they're sincerely anti-war. I mean, right. we know that Donald Trump ran on a big anti-war platform and did not deliver on that. But why? I mean, it makes me think of TPP, where you had people with brain worms who would say, well, Donald Trump is for TPP. Sorry, Donald Trump is against the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. So therefore, TPP must be good. And therefore, Bernie Sanders in opposing TPP is Trumpian. Right. Although, like, every progressive organization out there opposed the TPP. Include, including by the election year, Hillary Clinton. Like she, right. uh, she, she, fi- she officially publicly, right. yes. then you had that funny interview where Terry McAuliffe said out loud at the democratic convention, oh, she'll, she, don't worry. She's for yeah. the TPP. Yeah. Just, just, just get her in there. Yeah. Nothing will fundamentally change. Yeah. <laughs> um, but what do you say to this? I mean, is this something you've observed before in your years covering the Hill? I've never seen staff thrown under the bus like this. Mm. And I don't think I've ever seen a letter completely withdrawn under fire within 24 hours. Like I can't, I can't think of a time um, that that's been done. And what do you think it speaks to? What is it a sign of? Well, I, I mean, it, on, in the immediate term, it's a sign of the complete uh, shutdown of any discussion of anything other than full military support uh, for the, the, for the war in Ukraine. Um, I, there's also, I think it, there's also, it's like the house democratic caucus has become kind of unmoored from the kind of online left in, in a, in a way that I think is not healthy. Like the, there, there's sort of like, you know, back in the blogosphere days up through even until let's say, you know, a couple of years ago, there was a push and pull between kind of online commentariat and the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. Usually the online commentariat was criticizing them for not being, you know, not, not pushing hard enough, really, you know, going hard at centrist Democrats and try to buck up and put steel on the spine of the progressive wing. Um, that was kind of the symbiotic ecosystem that, that existed for a very long time. That feels broken. And it feels like the kind of online conversation at this point is taking place here and then what the what house democrats are doing is over here and there's very little overlap um between the two which is ironic given that you know for the first time in 20 years there's a bunch of people that call themselves democratic socialists and you would think you would you would think that 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 type of transformation uh would have brought things closer together Right. Instead, instead, it's produced this like rupture where the kind of like the House caucus is just doing what it wants. And the, the kind of like the, the kind of left wing of the progressive caucus, they're going to get hammered like ruthlessly from their from the centrist wing. But there really isn't much of a, an ecosystem out there that's going to like have their back in those fights. And so I think functionally speaking, they're just avoiding a lot of those fights. So how could it be different? Or I guess, why is there that disconnect? Can you speak more about that? So you have 
you're saying there's DSA, right, which has grown. So you have an actual, you know, you've a, a left that's to the left of the Democrats that has grown significantly. You had Bernie. You have demands for things like medical for Medicare for all, which have become mm-hmm. kind of de-radicalized, right? They're more part of the mainstream. But this isn't translating into that many policy changes. Well, it's not translating into any kind of uh, give and take between, like, if, think about it. Like, how much, how much did the kind of online uh, commentary talk about any anything that Congress was doing throughout 2021? Not much, right? And how do you think that could change? Well, it probably can't because they're not going to do anything. No, this, like this, I think this could have been like a big moment. Like this could have been um, a a moment where, you know, you had an outside uh, progressive kind of ecosystem Mm -hmm. that said, look, this is not, this is by no means everything we want. Like this is, this is not threatening to vote against funding. This is not being critical of, the war effort, uh, but it is opening a conversation into which we can bring our own voices, which then creates more of a conversation, which then eventually gets to a place where we're talking about, you know, ending this war and saving, th- you know, thousands, maybe millions of lives. Uh, that because there because there hasn't been a lot for people to kind of grab onto lately, and so for it to be shut down so quickly. I think one is a reflection, and Eric uh, Sperling said this in in my story, of the fear that war hawks have that their arguments for war are so thin that they will collapse on on inspection put up against diplomacy. So you have to shut, you can't allow that conversation. You have to shut that conversation down. And I think that a lot of people on the left feel like it's not worth it to support like that, that nothing's going to change. There's no point. Everybody's a sellout and just going to cave. And I think that uh, them capitulating this quickly probably just set the cause back that much further and, and only emboldens people who are kind of pushing a more cynical line about it. I don't know. What do you, what do you think? I don't know. I mean, what could it look like? I'm trying to think what it could look like for... Like, let's make the the most wholesome politics can work argument, right? Like right. the opposite so the, the of the way it, the way it would work is you'd put you'd put this letter out with thirty people, right? And then you'd have every this is a fantasy world, but it's the world that basically existed in say like two thousand nine during pushing for Obamacare or whatever. You'd have every or or Syria when when Obama was threatening to attack Syria in like twenty thirteen or so the online left like kicked into gear and just and and had people on the ground kind of pushing every single democrat and republicans to say no do not do this do not do this and then and then obama felt pressure and said you know what I'll, okay i'm not going to launch right. these attacks i'm going to let congress decide and there was so much pressure on congress congress was like we're not doing it like stop stopped an attack because this was after this, obama had said like there was a red line my red line right and then the red line was crossed and then they didn't. Then he pulled back, which Republicans, you know, hammered him for forever and ever and ever. So that that's that's a that's that's what a symbiotic relationship looks like. Like you see an opportunity to put pressure, and you put that pressure. So what that would look like here is a letter goes out with thirty people on it, 
every show, every every you know every online personality is talking about it, saying, "Here's thirty. There are two hundred and twenty-two Democrats or Republicans. Like, hey, if you live in a Republican district, why don't why don't you sign this letter? Because there, you know, you could get Freedom Caucus people to sign this letter, and so then people are then like people who have local, uh, you know, local shows, people who, um, uh, you you know, who live in an area might might reach out to their member of Congress and then they'd report back, Hey, I got a letter from my member of Congress and they, they, they support this too. Cause they're hearing from their constituents that there's room for this. Now you've got 35 people yeah. calling, calling for negotiations. Then two weeks later, you've got 50 and two weeks later you got 70. And then people start getting asked why, you know, then, then it becomes a national thing. So if you go on CNN or MSNBC, they're like, Hey, there's this bubbling, like call because you know the press loves like are you yes or no on this yeah. question that's such an easy question and so then it and then it picks up steam and the white house starts getting asked like why aren't you why aren't you you know talking about ending this war uh and so it, it builds pressure that's what that's what it could look like instead and i think recognizing that it could steamroll like that you know the the war uh, the warhawks you know, shut it down and then and the CPC just completely rolled over. Yeah. Well, that was my interview with Ryan Grimm, which was recorded earlier on Tuesday. And I'm about to bring on our next guest who is going to be live joining us live right now. Just a reminder, please do like this stream. It helps us reach more people, more viewers. Also, please do subscribe, hit subscribe and then hit the bell. If you would like to see this full stream, please become Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash the Katie Halper show. It's also a way to help make sure that this show keeps going. And so we really appreciate all your support. Now we're going to bring on Phyllis Bennis, who is a fellow of the Institute for Policy Studies, where she directs the New Internationalism Project. Her books include Before and After, U.S. Foreign Policy and the War on Terror. In 2001, she helped found the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights and now serves on the National Board of Jewish Voice for Peace. So... Welcome, Phyllis. Thanks very much. It's great to be with you, Katie. Thank you. Thanks for joining. The last time you were with us was in February, and you had written a piece about, let's see, what was it? It was a February 25th, you had published a piece called Respond to Putin's Illegal Invasion of Ukraine with Diplomacy, Not War, for Foreign Policy and Focus. And spoiler alert, that did not happen. And so I want to ask you about where we are now, months later. But before I do that, is there anything you want to respond to in what Ryan just said? Well, I'm glad that we're going to actually talk about what is going on uh, and not just the internal workings behind the scenes with the congressional letter. But there was one thing that that Ryan said that I, I did want to touch on. He talked a lot about the movement, and that is really important. That's at the at the core of this. But I think Ryan perhaps referred a little too much to what he called the online commentariat, which is a component of our movement. It's by far not the only part. It's not the biggest part. It's not the most influential part. And it, particularly if we look at communities of color and other more marginalized communities, uh, I think that it's not as representative as some parts of the movement are. If we look, for example, at the work of the Poor People's Campaign, which is bringing hundreds of thousands of people out into the streets across the country, organizing state by state, city by city, not mostly on occasion, yes, but mostly not big national meetings, but smaller 
local groups that are taking up all the issues that are fundamental to the poorest people in this country, which includes militarism, the cost of militarism, the $65 billion we've already spent on the war in Ukraine and the other $50 billion that's now under discussion for in Congress. People have a lot to say about that, but also issues of poverty, racism, et cetera, the climate. So I think that we just need to have a broader vision of what our movement is. We have a lot of work to do, and I don't think we always do such a good job in figuring out the relationship between how our movement operates and how our political champions in Congress are expected to operate. They're members of Congress at the end of the day. We should not be taking our leadership from them, for one thing. The movement needs to lead itself from outside and try and hold our members of Congress accountable. Sometimes we do better at that than other times. Sometimes we don't do so well. But I do think that the question of how much support we really can provide to members of Congress who are willing to take what clearly is a political risk, as we saw here, the the vitriol with which they were attacked, including by parts of the left, bring out how significant it is when our movement is itself divided. You know, this is not a situation that we have seen in the past, whether it was the war in Iraq, Afghanistan, others, where the movement, however broadly you defined it, may have had differences on how to oppose U.S. intervention in the war and what who our allies are in opposing intervention. But everybody opposed U.S. intervention in those wars. Everybody wanted the wars to end. That was very different than what we face now. We also saw this in Syria. I think that the, I would disagree that the online uh, progressive movement played a good role in the Syria war. I think at that time it it was, it was quite sectarian in, in some of the things that happened. And one of the results was a, uh, a great deal of pulling back from other activists who said, oh, I don't want to get too close to that. It's really a toxic environment. And instead, we had people on the ground who were actually mobilizing in communities, big national organizations like the Poor People's Campaign, like Move On, like uh, People's Action. There's a, there's a host of them uh, that are doing really deep organizing work in communities that are not relying on online work alone. Online work is very important. That's how Move On got its start. It's how other organizations get their start. But it can never be enough. So I think that we need to look at ourselves rather self-critically about what our movement is not doing enough of yet, both to protect members of Congress who are willing to take risks for even small steps. This letter was very important, but if you take a step back from it, it was a small step towards the right things. They raised the issue of a ceasefire. That's crucial. They raised the issue of diplomacy. It didn't really go very far. And yet the attacks on them were vicious. So it's not surprising that given that we were not in a position to protect them, that they pulled back. It's unfortunate, of course, and we are going to pay a price for it. But I think that we have to put it in that context. Why do you think it is, and I kind of brought this up with Ryan, um, why do you think it is that it's so much more divided now than it was with Iraq, for instance? Well, I think the easy answer, and it's not the whole thing, but a part of it is, who launched the war? For people who cut our political teeth, depending on how old you are and which generation you're from, you either cut your political teeth on Vietnam, on the wars in Central America, on the anti-apartheid movement, or on the post-9-11 wars. In all of those wars, anti-war definition focused on challenging U.S. policy. Because we were here in the United States. That was, uh, was and is our obligation. 
we should be very clear, Katie, that one of the things that's so dangerous and different about the war in Ukraine is that unlike other eras, if you will, where one era surpassed another and replaced it, we are looking at this war in Ukraine, which is so dangerous for so many reasons in terms of its global impact, and most especially in terms of the threat of nuclear escalation, which was not true in any of these other wars. But what we're also seeing is a a very different scenario where the United States, which we've become accustomed to challenging, we don't always do it very well, we don't always win, but we know who we're trying to change their policies, who we're trying to to reach. And we are here with an obligation to that because we are taxpayers and some of us are voters in this country, those of us who are citizens. The war in Ukraine has a component where the US has a huge obligation, which had to do with all of the provocations that went back to 1991. But none of those provocations made this war legal, acceptable, or anything else. It was a choice that Russia made They made an illegal choice, and they are carrying out a brutal war, which was not started by the United States. You know, one way to look at it that my friend and and mentor, Richard Falk, a noted international lawyer, puts it, there are really two wars underway in Ukraine. There's a war on the ground in which Russia was clearly the aggressor. And there's a geopolitical war that goes back before February 24th, 2022, where the U.S. and NATO have been very much part of the aggressors. But on the ground, this is Russia's war. That's not a question, but it has made it much more difficult for people in this country, some of whom are simply resistant to looking at the difference between a war that was launched by the United States and a war that was launched by an opponent of the United States. So all of that makes some of this more difficult, but it doesn't make it any less crucial for us to come up with answers to these difficult questions. So what are the answers? What has to happen now? Well, that's a critical question. And ironically, it's one of the things that this letter from the 30 members of Congress mentioned just in passing at the end, which was the need for a ceasefire. We need an immediate ceasefire. We needed an immediate ceasefire on February 25th, the day after the Russian invasion. We needed a ceasefire throughout the period when Russia was seizing more territory in Ukraine and trying to occupy the country. We need a ceasefire now when Ukraine is on the offense and is seizing back some of that territory. But the cost is extraordinary. We start, of course, with the human cost for Ukrainian civilians. Thousands of people dead, tens of thousands of people injured, homes destroyed, millions of people now. I think it's up to 11 million people who have been forced out of their homes. This is a crisis of enormous humanitarian, catastrophic impact. So we need to stop the war to stop the killing. This war is also having a devastating impact globally, also in ways that those earlier wars did not have. The wars in Iraq and Afghanistan that went on for decades, as devastating as they were for the peoples of Iraq and Afghanistan, they never threatened to explode into a nuclear exchange between the United States and Russia which together controlled 90% of all the nuclear weapons in the world. So we're looking at a very different threat level of this war. The global threat of famine because of the blockade and the sanctions on Russia that's preventing the shipment of food and of fertilizer out of Russia and out of Ukraine, that's affecting the poorest people in parts of the world that are thousands of miles away from the battlefields in Ukraine. 
So for all of these reasons, we need an immediate ceasefire. And unfortunately, what we're seeing is a sense that the U.S. and the Biden administration is following a long and really unfortunate history of how the U.S. has responded to the need in other crises, the need for an immediate ceasefire, and the U.S. instead says no. You know, the U.S. did this in 2006 during the Israeli war in Lebanon, where again, the United States was providing the military support for one side, for the Israelis, of course. And in the middle of that war, not even the middle, it was at the beginning of the war, then Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice under George Bush was asked, why don't you support a ceasefire now? And her answer was, no, we don't need a ceasefire now, that a ceasefire would have to wait until the conditions on the ground got better. And she refused to support a ceasefire for weeks. And so, of course, the numbers of casualties escalated exponentially. Three years later, again, Condoleezza Rice facing the Israeli assault in Gaza that was known as the Cast-Led War in 2008 and 2009, just in the last weeks of the, of the George Bush, the George W. Bush presidency. Again, she was asked at the United Nations, what about a ceasefire? And she says, we can't have a ceasefire yet. We can't have a ceasefire until we have a ceasefire that is sustainable and durable. Now, of course, you want a, a sustainable and durable ceasefire, but that's what requires long negotiations that can only begin once the fighting stops. That's the crucial part. Stop the fighting. Then you begin a serious kind of negotiation. And that's what's really going to be difficult and, and is going to require the U.S., to be involved, not to tell the Ukrainians what they should concede. That's up to Ukraine. That's not up to the United States. We don't get to tell them. But we are spending tens of billions of dollars and sending all the weapons, virtually all, some are coming from other NATO allies, but virtually all of the weapons that the Ukrainians are demanding are coming from the United States. It means we are also a player in this war. And one of the things we have to look at, we can't just stand aside and be cheerleaders. One of the things we have to look at is that the United States and Russia have a set of shared issues that demand immediate negotiations before things get even worse that are not about what territory is going to be conceded or not conceded, where is the southern border of Ukraine going to be drawn, but are issues like what about the sanctions that the U.S. has imposed on Russia? Is it going to use the model that it used with Iraq when the United States told Saddam Hussein, doesn't matter at this point whether you allow in the UN inspectors or not? That was supposedly what Iraq was supposed to do to avert a war. And finally, Madeleine Albright at the UN said, no, it, uh, sorry, not Madeleine Albright at that time. This was in the earlier uh, Iraq war. She told him at that time that it didn't matter whether inspectors were allowed in or not because the sanctions were not going to be lifted anyway. So any incentive that might have existed from the sanctions disappear. Is that our position around Russia? Or should we clarify to Russia that if there is a ceasefire, the sanctions will be lifted? All of the various arms control treaties and the nuclear treaties signed by the US and the Russians, all but one of them right now are either abandoned or defunct or have expired. And there are no negotiations underway to get those back. We need to get those treaties back to get those nuclear arsenals under control. We should be calling for negotiations with Russia on that. It's not about Ukraine. Ukraine has the right to make its own decisions about how it negotiates and what it concedes or doesn't concede. 
but it doesn't have the right to tell the United States what our diplomacy, about nuclear diplomacy especially, has to look like. So, you know, there's a set of these issues that is so important for us to be, you know, to be taking up directly with, with Russia. The question of the new U.S. military base that's being built in Poland, less than 100 miles from the Russian border. I mean, how provocative is that in the height of this war? This is a base that's designed to be the headquarters of the Fifth Army. It's a huge base with hundreds and hundreds of U.S. soldiers that will be permanently stationed there. And it's a base designed to, to house strategic missiles. It's a direct threat to Russia. What if we begin to negotiate with Russia about stopping construction on that new base in return for something we might demand of Russia? That's a negotiation between Russia and the U.S. on a U.S. issue involving this base in Poland. That's not telling the Ukrainians what they should be negotiating when there's time for negotiations to end the war as on a permanent basis. And what about the attempts to undermine Ukrainian agency? I mean, people like to talk about this, but as we know, Boris Johnson went to Zelensky, told him not to negotiate with Putin. It's pretty obvious he couldn't have done that, Johnson, without the approval or encouragement of the United States. Lloyd Austin has been saying how important it is to degrade Russia militarily. It seems like more and more it's clearer and clearer that this is not about saving Ukrainian lives as much as Ukrainians are being invoked. Can you talk about those ulterior motives? Well, I don't think they're so ulterior. I mean, they've been, as you say, they've been rather overt, more so in the early stages of the war than we're hearing now. I think if this, we were hearing more of this when the assumption was that the Russian invasion and occupation would be far more militarily successful and would succeed far quicker than what we're seeing now eight months in, where the the resistance of the Ukrainian military and the popular resistance of Ukrainian civilians has been extraordinary. It's been quite unexpected, I think, from the U.S. vantage point and maybe from the Ukrainian vantage point itself. But it's shown the weakness of the, of the Russian military. And I think the language has changed as a result. We heard, as you say, from, from the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, early on, he said directly, our goal is to weaken Russia. It was very explicit. We don't hear that anymore. In fact, uh, General Austin, I suppose Mr. Austin, now that he's now no longer a general, uh, but General Austin, just had a, his first phone conversation with his Russian counterpart a few days ago. So I think, in fact, there are uh, shifts underway, despite the vitriol with which this letter, this very mild letter from the progressives in caucus, uh, in Congress, calling for uh, a, a an opening to adding a diplomatic component to the U.S. support for for Ukraine, uh, you would think that they were. Well, I, I won't go there, but it's you know it was treated as something that was absolute, absolutely treasonous to even suggest such a thing. But I do think that behind the scenes we are seeing a bit of a shift in what we're being told and not told. We're not hearing this kind of language uh, about. Uh, going after Russia, we are hearing from the from the other side putting the agency on Ukraine. Whether it's meant or not is, you know, I don't I don't think we really know that. I do think that it's it's very unclear at a, for a country at war as Ukraine is facing under these horrific uh, humanitarian crisis conditions. If one were able to to send in secret 
pollsters to ask people, what do you really think? You know, how many more children are you prepared to let die to change where the southern border of your country is going to be? I don't think we know the answer to that. I think plenty of Ukrainians are willing to say and believe they will fight to the end for their country. And I'm guessing, and it's only a guess, that like any other country, there are plenty of Ukrainians who would say, I just want it to stop now. I just want my family to be safe. And the problem is the U.S. government is acting as if it knows. And for all we know, the Ukrainian government may be doing exactly the same thing, acting as if it knows precisely what its entire population wants. I don't feel like we know that. And unfortunately, that's not different than any other country at war. It's not different for the U.S. when our country has been at war. You know, by the end of the war in Afghanistan, 78% of the population said that the war was not a legitimate war and should never have been waged. Now, we know at the beginning, back in, in 2001, it was a very different situation. 88% of the population said, yes, we should go to war because that was the only option people were given. It was we either go to war or we let them get away with it. Those were the two options. The notion of diplomacy, of, of collaboration with the rest of the world, those were never on the agenda, never on the agenda. So we have to look at how do people ask the question before we make assumptions about what people actually want. And I think the notion of recognizing the need for an immediate ceasefire and the need for diplomacy, not only the Ukrainian diplomacy, which does have to be led by Ukrainians. We also need U.S.-Russian diplomacy because we are facing what could be a global catastrophe if there is even uh, putting aside the intention of either military power, either nuclear power, either Russia or the United States deciding to, to move in some drastically irresponsible way with a, with a nuclear weapon. Putting that aside, how these things can escalate out of control. We all know the sayings about how it's so much easier to start a war than to end a war. And once you're in a war, the other side has a say. We have to take that very seriously. You know, yes, we have to take seriously Russia's reckless threats about using military, uh, using nuclear weapons. We also have to take very seriously the consequences of our own government over the last three administrations, spending billions and planning to spend a trillion in modernizing our nuclear arsenal. So all of these are threats. And imagine if we have somewhere out on the Black Sea from either side, a, a U.S. sailor, a Russian sailor, sees a, a, a flare in, in the night at three o'clock in the morning and panics and doesn't know what to do and makes a move to fire back. Right now, the U.S. and Russia don't have what they had in Syria at the height of the war there, where they had a military hotline to call off their own threats to the other side to make sure that when the U.S. was about to launch a major uh, uh, bombing raid against Raqqa, for example, against a city in, 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 in Syria that the, the U.S. basically destroyed at the, just after the, the Russians basically destroyed Aleppo. Both didn't care. Neither the Russians nor the Americans cared how many Syrians they killed. They didn't want to kill each other because that could escalate. So they had this military hotline where a U.S. general could call his or her Russian counterpart and say, there was a mistake just now. This was not aimed at you. We're not trying to get your people. Get your people out of there. We don't want to kill you. 
And a Russian general could do the same thing, call his or her counterpart in the U.S. and say, get your people out of Aleppo. We don't want to hit anybody. And it worked. It worked. They killed on both sides. I don't know how many, but hundreds and thousands of Iraqi, uh, of Syrians in that case, and Iraqis in another case, but of Syrians. But they didn't kill each other. You didn't have any Americans killed by Russians or Russians killed by Americans. And that prevented it from escalating. They don't have that kind of a hotline in Ukraine. So it's a very dangerous moment. And if we don't take that seriously and we only look at exactly the the conditions on the ground inside Ukraine right now, we're putting ourselves in a far more dangerous situation for the whole world. One thing that I think has been clarified, though, is that I think Putin didn't actually threaten to use nuclear weapons. There was confusion around that. I think people thought he did, but it was different types of weapons. I think one could argue, he, as, as far as I know, he didn't use the word nuclear. But I think it was, it was a pretty clear threat, nonetheless. It was clear, knowing that between the U.S. and the Russians, they have more or less the same number of uh, they have both in the area of 43 to 4,500 4, nuclear weapons each. When he talked about the other weapons that he has available, that nuclear weapons, as well as other non-conventional weapons, whether uh, chemical or biological, all of those are threats. The same as the United States has all of those weapons and has used versions of them over the years. So I think it's a mistake to say, well, maybe he didn't really use the word nuclear and therefore we don't have to take seriously that there is a serious danger of nuclear escalation. Again, not necessarily because Putin has any intention of launching such such an attack. I don't think he does, but that doesn't mean it can't happen. I don't think President Biden has any intention to do so. That doesn't mean it can't happen from our side as well. When those weapons exist, until they are completely abolished. When those weapons exist, there is the danger that they could be used. And that's an enormous danger. It's a very small chance. But when that chance is anything other than zero, that's way too big, no matter how small it may seem. And I think one of the most irresponsible things we're seeing from the media is, and I'm uncomfortable to say this, but I would say the over-vilification of Putin because he's been compared to Hitler again and again. And the takeaway from that is clearly you don't negotiate. It's his Munich. This is appeasement. Yeah. So can you shed light on how, well, first of all, he's not Hitler. That doesn't mean you like Putin, but I think it's pretty irresponsible to suggest that he is. But also how, regardless of your of one's thoughts on Putin, obviously you have to negotiate. I mean, people were saying you can't negotiate with him because you can't trust him. Well, if that's true, what's the end game? That's exactly the right question. What's the end game here? The notion that this is going to lead to some kind of World War II style uh, total victory by, by Ukraine over the entire Russian military or the entire Russian government or something and a surrender by Russia, I think is is wishful thinking. That's never going to happen. I think we're even hearing from officials in Washington these days that it's not possible for either, for either side to win this in an all-sided military victory. It's going to result in some level of a war of attrition. And the question is, are we going to get into negotiations sooner with fewer people killed? 
or keep fighting, 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 fighting for much longer, resulting in far more people killed and far more destruction. So those are the options. The options are not, we're going to fight till the finish and the finish is going to be beautiful and we're going to have a, a surrender somewhere and a flag raising and it's all going to be great. That's not going to happen. So that's part of it. But the other part of it I think is important. It's, it's, I think it's always foolish to make these kinds of comparisons, whether it's comparisons to Hitler, comparisons to the Holocaust, horrific realities that people at war, people whose countries are at war have to live under are horrific and comparing them to each other doesn't do any good. It is important to look at history. If we look at not is Putin Hitler, but is Russia in 2022 a, an appropriate parallel to Germany, say in 1935? And I would say absolutely not. Germany in 1935 was on the rise as a leading economic power. It's its industrial might was unsurpassed in, in Europe. Its wealth, its power was, was huge and rising. Russia is now a second-rate economic power. The U.S., if this figure of about $65 billion that the U.S. has sent to, uh, to, to Ukraine in these last eight months, is the entire military budget of Russia last year, right? So the Russian military, and we're seeing it now, its inability to hold any of these pieces of territory that it seized. Uh, the, the, the Russian leadership is forced to do these massive recruiting campaigns that are not succeeding. People are fleeing to other countries to avoid serving in the military. So this is not, this is not a powerful military force that's on the rise or a powerful economic force that's poised to take over Europe or take over the world. It's a weak, second-rate power that is launching these horrific attacks against civilian targets, because that's what it's capable of with a second-rate army. That means a lot more people are going to die, a lot more cities are going to be destroyed, and Russia is still not going to, quote, win the war, nor is Ukraine going to be able to stop that kind of assault from far away. So the question is not, do we negotiate? The question is, when do we negotiate? How do we negotiate? How do we get to negotiations sooner rather than later, so that Ukraine can be leading a diplomatic process in its own right, and the US can be part of a diplomatic process with its leading global opponent in Europe, which is Russia, over these other critical matters, there needs to be an entirely new so-called security apparatus in, in Russia, uh, sorry, in Europe, in all of Europe. And it needs to include Russia, it needs to include Belarus, it needs to include all of Europe in a way that was just beginning to be thought about after the, after the end of the Cold War, after the collapse of the Soviet Union in, in 1991. That was the whole basis of the conversation where the, the promise was made that the, the Russians would accept the reunification of Germany as a Western power in return for an agreement that NATO would not be moved further east. And we know what happened. But the reason for that whole conversation was precisely because there was a need to rework what was Europe now that the Iron Curtain had been lifted. So the question is, what's Europe going to be now? What we know is it's going to be completely militarized in a way that Europe has not been since before the end of the Cold War. You know, when we have now an agreement by countries like Germany that had never agreed to send weapons abroad are suddenly eager to send weapons to Ukraine. We have countries like Sweden and, and 
uh, uh, Finland, who had prided themselves on staying outside of the military blocs, clamoring now to join NATO. We have all these countries saying, we'll raise 2% of our entire GDP and put it into the military, something that almost all of these countries had never been willing to do, despite US pressure. And what it means is that the project of Europe, which claimed somewhat falsely, but it was an aspirational claim, that Europe is the project of human rights, is not even on the table anymore. Now, Europe is the project of militarism. And that's a defeat for all of us, for the whole world. Before you go, I just wanted to ask, and thank you for being generous with your time. I want to show you a video and I wanted you to respond to it. It's a video from Morning Joe. So trigger warning, everyone. But it shows, I think, the way the media is talking about any attempts to negotiate. So, Brad, could we play that case study QB clip? And two dozen Democratic lawmakers are urging President Biden to dramatically shift his strategy on the war in Ukraine. In a letter sent yesterday, 30 Democrats led by progressive caucus chair Pramila Jayapal are calling on the president to pursue direct diplomacy with Russia. They argue a more forceful attempt at diplomacy is necessary to bring the months-long conflict to an end. The letter was criticized by some centrist Democrats for potentially legitimizing Vladimir Putin's crimes in Ukraine. Then, hours after the letter was released, the caucus sent a rare follow-up statement to clarify its original message, writing in part, we are united as our Democrats in our unequivocal commitment to supporting Ukraine in their fight for their democracy and freedom in the face of the illegal and outrageous Russian invasion and nothing in the letter, mm-hmm. advocates for a change in that support. Wow. Did they walk into uh, Kevin McCarthy's office and say, hey, we want to help you out here. We know that you stuck your foot in your mouth about Ukraine, so we're going to help you out here. I Just think about this. Vladimir Putin invades Ukraine. Vladimir Putin commits war crimes against the Ukrainian people. Vladimir Putin selectively targets apartment buildings to kill children. Vladimir Putin bombs playgrounds. Vladimir Putin orders his troops when they leave towns to deliberately target and kill all Ukrainian civilians. And you have 30 progressives saying America must talk to Russia. I, some, something's left out of that equation. And that would be the Ukrainian people who are victims of war crimes every day, Mike. What planet do these people live on to think that you can make peace with Vladimir Putin without first running it by Ukrainians, uh, the Ukrainian people and their leader, Zelensky. Who is the- first of all, just to butt in here quickly, they made it so clear in their letter that this was not about sidelining Ukrainians. Okay, that's more. Again, trigger warning. Grab your sick bags, as Miko Pellet said before we saw Bill Maher interview Bibi Netanyahu. Literally fighting for his life, and the Ukrainians are literally fighting for their lives. 
Well, what you said, Joe, just now resulted in the second letter. It's like the Cuban Missile Crisis. We're going to respond to the second letter that they posted rather than the initial letter, because in the initial letter, everything that you just said would pertain to critique to a critique of that letter. Why would you negotiate with Vladimir Putin? He is a war criminal. Uh, he has used the same strategy that the Russians used in World War II. Destroy and demonize your opponent. Try to make your opponent so fearful by killing innocent civilians, by bombing schools, hospitals, sanctuaries, cathedrals. Kill the civilians. That's how you win the war. That's how the Russians think that they can defeat the Ukrainians. They can't defeat the Ukrainians that way. And the United States has no one to negotiate with in Moscow because the leader of, the, of Russia is a war criminal. Yeah, and Edward Lilly. Oh my gosh, they came up with this great idea. Talk to Vladimir Putin. Negotiate with Vladimir Putin. Why didn't anybody think about that before yesterday? Oh wait, they did. And we've been jabbering on as a country, rightfully so, about off-ramps, off-ramps. And while we're talking about off-ramps to help this guy get out of the corner of, of one of the most criminal and most idiotic decisions that, that any international leader has made in our lifetimes. Don't you want to provide an off-ramp if it's such an idiotic decision? Do we need to watch more of this? Yeah, it's almost over. I'm sorry. Well, we're talking about Putin's off-ramp. Putin is targeting civilians. Uh, he, he's deliberately committing war crimes. He's ordering that his soldiers gun down civilians as they retreat from town. Talk to Vladimir Putin. We tried that. He doesn't want to talk, will he? No, he's not interested in talking. They talk about vigorous diplomatic efforts in that letter signed by 30 Democratic progressives without saying exactly what that would look like or how it might persuade Vladimir Putin to get out of Ukraine. Okay. Sorry, everyone. No, you have to know your enemy, though. It's not only knowing your enemy. It's that's who you negotiate with. Oh, I meant, the, I meant MSNBC, but yeah, keep going. You don't really need to negotiate with your friends. You need to negotiate with the side that's opposed to you, that you're trying to kill and that's trying to kill you. And it's because of that litany of crimes. It's horrifying. Those crimes are war crimes, perhaps crimes against humanity. And, that, and there needs to be accountability for that. And you need to stop the killing and not just let it continue on this theory that somehow negotiations equal surrender. Negotiating with your enemy is not surrender. It's figuring out how to stop the enemy from killing your people. And that's crucial. That's crucial when you have a war where civilians are being killed and forced out of their homes in this way. Can you trust the, the leader of, of Russia? I don't think so. Can anybody trust the leaders of our country, not very often if we look at foreign policy here. You know, the, the Iranians are not wrong to be afraid that if they go back into the, into the Iran nuclear deal without some guarantees, that the, another president in four years or in eight years or sometime is going to walk away from it the way Trump did. You know, we have to figure out how to deal with that. But the notion that you don't talk to a terrible leader who is responsible for millions of, of ruined lives, not yet millions dead, I'm glad to say, but millions of ruined lives, 
that's precisely because how, how you need to talk. That's precisely because of those ruined lives that you have every obligation to do everything, not only militarily. Ironically, the, the letter, both the original letter and the clarification letter and the, uh, the withdrawal letter, none of them spoke about actually reversing the U.S. policy of maintaining massive military support. They supported that from the beginning. They wanted to add a diplomatic component to it. That's not easy to do. It's not easy to do diplomacy while the fighting goes on. It has happened in history. The Vietnamese did that. Lee Duc Tho managed to negotiate with, God help us, Henry Kissinger, while the bombs were falling on his country. It took them from 1968 until 1973 to negotiate a peace deal that involved and ultimately led to the withdrawal of U.S. troops. And ultimately, the Vietnamese won the war. But they spent those five years from 1968 to 1973 under the U.S. bombs, under U.S. napalm, facing the Agent Orange use that was destroying whole generations of children, war crimes that our country was committing. And yet they negotiated. I don't know that I would have been brave enough to do that, but the Vietnamese were. I think probably people in Ukraine are as well. Whether their government wants to is a question. Whether our government will allow them to is another question. Whether our government will negotiate with our opponent on the issues that involve our relationship, like nuclear weapons. That's the critical question that comes back to why the U.S. has to be involved in negotiations. It's not up to Ukraine to figure out how to manage these unmanageable arsenals of nuclear weapons that are capable of destroying our entire planet. It's up to us. It's up to the United States and the Russians. These are our weapons that we have used to hold the world hostage. And it's up to us to solve that problem. Well, thank you so much, Phyllis. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. To hear the rest of that discussion, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Helper. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.